Good morning. I normally uh, get up here and tell you how far through the internship I am. For those of you, if you're maybe visiting, my name is uh, Jim Grossman, and I, I serve here as pastoral intern. Um, as how far I am into the internship, it's about seven months, um, and July 8th will be uh, the last day that I, Sunday I serve in this capacity. And so with introductions out of the way, uh, would you pray with me before we get into the Word and learn from it? Lord, we come to you and, and seek your help. It's our desire to come here this morning, not to seek things for ourselves, but to come and have a meeting with you. Lord, no one here wants to hear me speak. We've, we've come to hear you speak, and I need your help. I've prepared through direction what to say, but if it's going to mean anything, your spirit has to move behind it in our hearts as you speak to us. So come and meet with us, Lord. We ask it in your holy name. Amen. Well, I heard this illustration uh, listening to another preacher, and, and I'm going to borrow it from him. Uh, Wednesday, as I was driving here, I, I listened to Alistair Begg and, and uh, he was sharing this example of children who were um, pouring out a school bus and of listening to parents as, as they pick up their kids either off the bus or, or at school. And he, he was hearing them ask, um, did you have fun today? Now, he was careful not to offend, but he said, if you listen closely uh, to a, an Indian or, or Chinese parent, they were asking their kids, what did you learn today? And uh, he said... What a revolutionary idea that you went to school to learn. And uh, after the chuckles subsided, he asked, um, what about church? Why did you come here today? And uh, maybe you came out of obligation. Maybe someone made you come or, or dragged you, coerced you to come. Uh, maybe you could care less what happens for the next 25 minutes. Maybe... Uh, you came because you would have felt guilty if you didn't. And uh, maybe not. Maybe you came with a happier heart and you thought, you know, I'll come sing some good songs and hear a nice word and then move along with my day. And so I wonder when you leave today, as I sometimes ask myself, uh, will you be asking if you had a good time at church today or should the question be, what did you learn today? And back to Alistair, he said, loved ones, that is the question. And I would add, not just what did you learn today, but who did you minister to? And what effect did meaning as a body have? Because as Pastor Joe has often said, if Jesus was, what he was saying in the Gospels here was, was just for perform, performance or to get applause, that it would be the height of theater. So it's not a question of did you have fun or were you entertained, or were you pleased with the overall style of worship? But in addition to the question of what did you learn, who did you minister to? And what effect did meeting as a body have should be the questions that you are asking as you leave today. And so as we open our Bibles to Mark 9 and read, I'm asking you as listeners to take uh, anything that might distract you and asking if you would set it aside 
Um, I'm asking you to listen, not to me, but what God would have to say to you and ask you if you would set your mind on learning and hearing what it is that God has to say to you today. Mark 9, verse 38, page 715, if you're using uh, one of the church Bibles. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop, because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name, because you belong to Christ, will certainly not lose their reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God than with one eye, with one eye, than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. This is a high-stakes message. can't hardly read Jesus' sayings without scratching your head and just really being shocked by what he says sometimes. Not if you're being honest, I think. I'm mean, sure if you've interacted with it recently or, or studied it recently, you might not be as shocked, but the gravity of it should still be the same. There's, these are some hard sayings of Jesus. There's some high stakes. Verse 42 and on, we're talking about heaven and hell. And Jesus is using language which is by no means uncertain. He's not pulling any punches. He's preaching with authority, and the stakes are high. Let's start with verse 38. Teacher, John is addressing Jesus. In verse 36, Jesus was teaching, and he took a little child in his arms. And in verse 42, Jesus is talking about any of these little ones. We see in context that starting at verse 38, it's a continuation. Jesus had just taught them that if you want to be first, you've got to be last. You want to be the greatest? Then you've got to be the servant of all. Not that different from what he had already taught them looking back at 835. If you want to hold on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for his sake, if you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, then you'll save your life. This, this self-denial, this attitude of being the very last and servant of all is central to what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is teaching them that point one, serving God, is high stakes. This type of service is not a minimally involved service. And so here comes John, teacher, he says. Now John is usually thought of in Christian circles or talked about as the disciple whom Jesus loved often thought of as meek and mild, uh, and the disciple of love, love, sometimes forgetting that Jesus also gave him the nickname, along with his brother James, the sons of thunder. It's, not, it's, it's quite a nickname, really, more of a firebrand type of a nickname. 
and he wasn't afraid to ask a question. And here, verse 38, we see that he also wasn't afraid to go up to someone and tell them to stop casting out demons. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Now, what was John looking for? Was it a question? Was it like, teacher, we did this. Good job, right? Or was it like, teacher, we did this, and now in light of what you just said, was that okay? Or was John making a statement? Teacher, we told them to stop because they're not one of us. Maybe sort of a report. Jesus, there was some unauthorized use of your name, but don't worry, we put an end to it. Now, I don't know John's heart, but I know what Jesus replied. And Jesus replies to John in his reply in verse 39 to 41. It it doesn't take a, a turn to an act of service in verse 41 and make a break in verse 42, and then start talking, talking about a different topic of hell. It's uh, not a teaching to do just the right things and don't do other bad things. Rather, the, the whole lot of it ties together from verse 33 through verse 50. They are in the house together, and Jesus isn't teaching them about doing right things and, and avoiding the bad. It's, it's all about gospel teaching, the good news teaching of Jesus that is counter to what you think is greatness, that's counter to what you think is service, that's counter to what you think is sin, and it's about heaven and hell and what God's kingdom is all about. So there really shouldn't be a break in the text there, and it's, it's a longer reply than what the NIV makes it look like, so, so keep that in mind as we move forward. And so Jesus' reply uh, to John in verse 39 is, do not stop him. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. Really? That's a a tough statement. And John seemed to draw a pretty clear line. Not one of us. Them over there, us. Have you heard that from Christians before? These Christians, those Christians. And it's... uh, Presumably, whoever had been casting out these demons, they they saw that saying these words had power, that casting out a demon in Jesus' name, that that carried power. Now, some hold that these these were believers. One commentator said, we may therefore safely imagine this was either one of John the Baptist's disciples who at his master's command had believed in Jesus, or maybe one of the 70 who Christ had sent out in Luke 10, 1-7, which we read about in Mark, in the parallel account of it, when we went through Mark 6-6. And it's an interesting assertion. Now, I don't know who they are, and Mark doesn't identify them, but it doesn't matter because Jesus is clear. They're not against us. So that means that they're for us. Don't stop them, for whoever is not against us is for us. That's pretty tough to be like John, to see another supposed group of believer of Jesus and say, well, they're not part of my group, and they don't have it all right like my group does. So I better tell them not to go around in Jesus' name doing these things. They're not part of my Jesus crew, so they're not for us. Wrong. Just because they don't go to your group does not mean that they have got it all wrong and need to stop. Jesus says it simply, but powerfully. If they are not against us, they are for us. And that's a hard pill to swallow. For the nine who who weren't on the mountain at the transfiguration, I think John feels some identity with the nine, and he's, he's possibly damaged that chapter 9, verse 18, that they couldn't cast out a demon. And here goes this non-authorized guy walking around doing it. So Jesus telling them, don't stop them, 
there for us, might have been a pretty big ego bruise. And I wonder if it might be for us too, when we see others going out in Jesus' name, but not part of our group, doing things for God, but without our idea of what is okay for them to do, maybe not. You can decide that one for yourselves. Verse 41, as I said, it's, it's not a change in topic. And it's a longer reply than, than the NIV makes it look like. The division here between verse 41 and, and 42 isn't, isn't a switch in topics. It's a connector. It's the next logical step. Verse 41, Jesus speaking. Don't you get it? Even the smallest act in my name won't go overlooked. Giving a cold cup of water in my name won't go overlooked. So why would you think that the good deed of something far greater like casting out a demon, would go overlooked or unrewarded. I tell you the truth, it won't go unrewarded, not even for the smallest deed. Oh, and you know what? Talking about the smallest deed, verse 42, if anyone causes any one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, guess what? See, the consequence of even the smallest actions are of great importance. Pastor Joe said, God doesn't overlook the smallest act of kindness that enriches a believer done in his name. Just as in verse 42, he doesn't overlook a small act of spiritual indifference towards the spiritual condition of another person, not caring whether they sin or not. So in other words, we're being reminded in verse 42 that we are a brother's keeper. Any act that causes a child of God to stumble in sin, that's not a light thing. In fact, it's a grave thing. It's a serious thing. If you cause a child of God to stumble, you'd be better off dead. Why don't you go drown yourself with concrete shoes? You'd be better off. Ouch. That's some pretty serious language. It's a high-stakes game here. But it's real life, and it's not a game. And it is high stakes, point two. Stakes of our sin are high. In verses 42 through 48, what Jesus is teaching has to do both with causing someone else to sin and causing ourselves to sin. And if we cause someone else to sin, we'd be better off dead. If we cause ourselves to sin, the implication is that entering eternal life maimed with a maimed earthly existence is far better than to enter eternal death with a whole earthly experience and because of it have to suffer where the worm never dies, let alone yourself, as you're tormented by them, and where the fire never goes out and is not ever quenched. Again, that's some pretty serious language. It causes you to ask, why in the world would Jesus say it like that? Why the intense hyperbole here? And some will ask, is he being literal? Was Jesus telling his disciples to cut off their hands and to practice body mutilation? No, none of them left the house maimed. They didn't, in the next verse, get out swords and cut off their body parts. It was clear to those hearing Jesus, he didn't literally mean to cut off their feet, that he was teaching them about the high stakes of eternal life, the alternative being to go to hell. Take a look at each verse here about life. We have enter life, enter life, and enter the kingdom of God. Look at each verse about death. We have go into hell, be thrown into hell, and be thrown into hell. Now at each enter life, there isn't a description about enter life uh, where glory never ends or, or something of that nature. Instead, we have the descriptor on going into hell, 
where their worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. Verse 43, where the fire never goes out. Now, if you have the same NIV Bible, you'll see that a, a, a number 44 isn't listed. That's because some manuscripts uh, have it and some don't. And where they do, it says, where their worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. Same thing with verse 46, where their worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. You can see that in the footnotes. But, verse 48, all manuscripts have, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. So you might say this is more of a warning against going to hell than it is a gospel that tells you about all the great benefits you'll receive if you just come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and your life is going to be great. It's going to be easy sailing from here on out all the way into heaven. If that were the case, it might read different. It might say better to enter heaven where the party never ends than to go to hell. Better to ride a cloud into heaven than to be stuck in the underworld. Better to ride your way to glory than to even have to think about what hell is. If Jesus didn't say that, he put the description on what he didn't put the description on what heaven is like. Here in this house, as he's teaching them, he put the description on what hell is like. Some liberal theologians will try and explain hell away, but it's pretty tough to do that here. And it's obvious that Jesus is talking about the afterlife, about either going to the good place or the bad place. In the text, the word for hell is Gehenna. There are three words in the New Testament used for hell. It's uh, Hades, Gehenna, and Tartarus. Most people know that Hades is the Greek underworld, the place in the Greek mind that the damned go uh, into the depths of Hades. Uh, Maybe you didn't know that the alternative is Elysium or the Isle of Blessed. Tartarus was a place that's lower than Hades. Uh, It's said to be as far beneath Hades as heaven is above the earth. Tartarus was regarded by the Greeks as the abode of the wicked dead where they suffer punishment for their evil deeds, which equates to the Gehenna of the Jews. To the Jews, the bad place, hell, place of, of future punishment, Gehenna, they also referred to as Gehenna of fire. It gathers its imagery from the original valley of Hinnom, south of Jerusalem, where they would throw their dead uh, filth and animals and garbage and cast them out to be burned, uh, and it became a fit symbol of the wicked and their future destruction. So the literal valley of, of Gehenna in Jerusalem is used figuratively as the name for place, for the place or state of everlasting punishment, i.e. hell. And so talking about entering life after death and using the language where the worm never dies and the fire never goes out is a reference to eternity. The historical valley of Gehenna is symbolically representative of the eternal state of what we call hell in English. The high stakes of sin here are represented by their consequences of eternal hellfire, of a torment that never goes away. A worm worming its way through those in torment and that worm never dying never going away, no relief from that worm, just weeping and gnashing of teeth where the fire never goes out and is never quenched. The stakes of sin are death, an eternal death. And a vivid description of this death is given by Jesus as he draws on the imagery as he quotes from Isaiah 66, which talks of God's final judgment on sin, which is even more descriptive 
than the portion he quoted. You see, you cannot share the gospel without sharing about sin. We had a, a missionary guest speaker, Rich Perales, and he preached on this, and he was right. Without a need to be saved, the gospel just doesn't make any sense. The good news is that you can be saved from sin and death. Without preaching on sin and death, you cannot properly preach the gospel. You cannot preach for repentance from acts that lead to death without preaching against the acts that lead to death. Before you can tell people to repent, before you can call them to repent, you need to tell them of their need to repent. You need to tell them that sin sends them to hell, and the Bible teaches the wages of sin is death before you can call them to repent. Now, I don't think the word sin is vague, but just so that no one is without excuse, if you want the list, the deeds of the flesh are obvious, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, witchcraft, enmities, hatred, discord, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, fits of rage, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and the like of these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so we have to ask people to repent. What does it mean to repent? Sometimes kids' answers are the best. That's why we say, you know, explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old. And uh, we have a little yellow book out on our Welcome Center here. It's a children's first book of answers, and it asks the question, what does it mean to repent? And it says, repentance means saying, I am truly sorry for my sins. I hate them, I want to stop doing them, and I want to live to please God. It means you have to turn from your sins. But the gospel that Jesus was preaching that Mark records was that the time had come, the kingdom of heaven is near, repent and believe the good news. This is the message that he sent his disciples out to preach, Mark six twelve. They went out and preached that people should repent. Now, I had this friend in Bible college, and he worked at a restaurant, and he was sharing this story about, about two girls who worked there with him. And, and they were bragging about partying, and they weren't not, and bragging about not being able to remember the night before uh, because they think they got roofied. They thought, they thought they were drugged and they were proud about it. And I asked him if he shared the gospel with these girls. And, he, well, no, he said, but they know I go to Bible college and, and, th- and I talk about church and, and they know I believe in God, so, so my life will be an example to them. But I wonder, uh, the style of evangelism where we don't mention Jesus' name or call people to repentance. I wonder if there's much of any salt in that. Can, can we really preach the gospel? Can you really ask someone to turn to God without first asking them to turn from themselves and repent of their sins? Must they not ask for forgiveness to receive it? I think any evangelist worth his salt will give a call to repentance. Verse 49 to 50, salt and judgment. Verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. So other biblical, biblical imagery here that might help us understand what everyone being salted with fire means. In Leviticus 2, 2 to 3, there's a grain offering, and it's given by fire. Uh, the instructions are given in Leviticus 2, verse 13, to season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. 
1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15 says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hair, straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even, only, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Everyone being salted with fires seems to be drawing on other biblical imagery. And so asking the question, can we really preach the gospel? Can you really ask someone to repent without asking them to turn from themselves and from their sins? That question has been answered by God in his word that the coming judgment has been promised for everyone. And in order to be saved, they must repent. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And people must, as Jesus said, Repent and believe the good news. Jesus said to Nicodemus, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And anyone who believes is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is condemned already because they haven't believed on the name of God's one and only son. It's clear that the stakes of our sin are high, and it's, it's equally clear that the grace that we would need to cover such a price would have to be equally high. Philippians 2 and Hebrews 10. Hebrews says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, Christ came into the world. The high price was what he paid when he came into the world. Mark 9, verse 12. It's written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected. Mark 9, 31. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. Mark 8, 31. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. That was the high price, the price of suffering and dying for us in our place. The high price was that though Philippians 2, he was equal with God in nature, he didn't consider it something to grasp. Instead, he made himself nothing. Christ came into the world, lowering himself lower than the lowest man, and died for us since it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, we needed something far greater. We needed the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. You see, we need to kill sin, or sin will eventually kill us. It's like gangrene. Once it spreads and takes root, you can't save the limb. You've got to cut it off if you want to stay alive. Sin is is like gangrene. It is an infection that will kill. And unless we repent of it, we will not live. We will die for all eternity where our worm will not die and the fire that burns us will not be quenched. And the gospel message of grace saves us from the extreme cost of sin if we accept it in faith and repentance. This is the gospel we believe and this is the gospel that we need to go out there and preach. Now for the conclusion, verse 50. Jesus says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. I wonder if that seems a bit anticlimactic to anyone else. It kind of seemed that way to me, talking about hellfire and and worms not dying, and then uh, have salt and and be at peace. But you know what? I don't think Jesus cares. 
He laid down a heavy weight, a sort of a hellfire message. If you'll notice, Jesus is an open-air preaching to non-believers. He's teaching his message to his followers in the privacy of a home. And uh, so maybe there's a type of fire, assaulting with fire for believers. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.17, For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. Paul says in Romans the same thing, judgment first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. The judgment that comes for Christians is not a final judgment that sends us to hell. Jesus' blood covers us and pays for our sins so that we don't go there. But it is a calling to account of every deed. And so every deed, no matter how small. So we can't think, verse 42, that we can be ambivalent about uh, causing someone else to sin. And Well, it doesn't matter if I cause them to sin, they're responsible. No, we can't be ambivalent that way. And as Jesus finishes speaking with them, he ends by circling back to the beginning. Verse 34, they had argued with each other. And now he tells them to be at peace with each other. He isn't concerned with performance. He isn't trying to make a grand display of smooth-sounding words or slick philosophy pounded home by clutter literary devices. What I'm saying is he wasn't trying to end with a bang. It's not about if you had fun listening to him. Whether you liked his message, he's wholly unconcerned with whether you, the disciples liked his message or not, whether it was hard. Instead, he ends anticlimactically with some practical advice. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. It's a good way to end. Verse 50 is an appeal to the good nature of salt. Salt acts in good ways as a seasoned flavor, as a preservative to keep from decay, as a cleansing agent to clean. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, what good is it? If we lose our saltiness, what good are we? If the church has lost its seasoning, its preservative effect on the world, what good is the church to the world? Jesus ends, have salt in yourselves. It's an admonition and a reminder a caution, and an encouragement. Salt is good. Don't lose it. And don't argue with each other or disclude those who aren't against you. You be at peace with each other. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Let's pray. Lord, I pray and ask that you would make us worth our salt we wouldn't lose our saltiness, that we could share your, your good news unashamed, that we could truthfully say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believeth. We want to live lives that demonstrate we're yours by example of how we live, but we don't want to stop there and be devoid of sharing the need for repentance that others are in need of forgiveness. Jude 1 says, show mercy to some, to others snatch them from the fire, to others show mercy mixed with fear, being careful. And uh, we ask that you would move by your spirit to help us to know when and how and give us words to do that very thing. Uh, to share your message of forgiveness. And us too, 
forgive us. We're in need of forgiveness. We argue with each other, cause others to sin, cause ourselves to sin. Daily we need your grace and mercy. And I ask that you would be gracious to us, that you would bless us and keep us, that you would cause your face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. Turn your face towards us and give us salt and peace. In your name, amen. You're dismissed.